Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. Today is book three, episode two. I am once again joined by the author of the book, Influence People, Brian Ahern. How was your Labor Day weekend, Brian? It was uh, very nice, Josh. Beautiful weather here in Ohio. Well, good, good. Yeah, we uh, just stayed at home and spent some time with family and uh, celebrated a little bit and did a little work yesterday. So it was a a good weekend for for me and my family. So for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. Now, the next part of the book that we'll be discussing is the principles of ethical influence. And Brian, you told me prior that this is a two-day workshop. So for the loyal readers who want more information beyond this podcast, is there a way they can sign up or attend one of these workshops? Well, right now, when I do the workshops, I usually do them for agencies and corporations. Uh, I don't do what I will call an open workshop. That's something I probably will do in the future with the advent of Zoom and digitizing some of the materials. Um, But typically, an insurance agency or an insurance company, if they gravitate to this and they say this would really help us, I would go into the organization and then we would do the two-day workshop at their facility. Do you ever do any speaking keynote or speaking engagements for associations or conferences, things like that? I do. I do lots of that. And uh, COVID kind of threw a monkey wrench into that because a big part of my plan was to be at as many uh, big I, PIA, different Mm -hmm. industry events as possible around the country um, and have an opportunity to do that. So, yeah, that's that's one of the things I enjoy most. Okay. well, good. Well, good. Well, hopefully... uh people who are in the association world are listening to this. Uh, I'm in North Carolina. So Abby, if you are listening to this, uh, I'd recommend reaching out to Brian to see if he can be a speaker at, uh, let's see, Insure Expo, which is in the spring and then annual conference, which is in the fall. Now, before we get into today's episode, if you've not listened to episode one, hit pause, go download it, listen to it, then come back to this episode. So let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. So the principles of influence come from Bravo Cialdini and his books, Influence Science and Practice and Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. So each of the seven psychological principles describe how people think and behave. But again, this is not a magic wand or a silver bullet that will lead to 100% success. And you write about how Albert Einstein attempted to develop the unified theory during his lifetime to explain and link together all known physical phenomena. And you relate how the search for the unified theory is like influence in that there's no way to predict everything that will happen and there's no perfect model for predicting human behavior. Rather, these principles describe how people typically behave most of the time. So you then equate the principles to a map and the better the map, the easier the journey will be. So regarding this map, Do you have these principles mapped out that you explain in your workshop about how people generally make decisions or how to get people to say yes? Yeah, we we use a a basic 
model called the core motives model. And that was developed by a man named Dr. Gregory Neidert, who was actually Robert Cialdini's partner at Influence at Work. And the basic model is this, Josh. We look at three things, relationship building, overcoming uncertainty, and then moving people to action. Um, this framework is great for selling. You know, you think about you need to build a relationship and then people might like you, but then they're not sure, should I actually move my insurance to your agency? You have to help them overcome the uncertainty. And then even if they're no longer uncertain, some people just fear change. And so they're not doing what they need to. And we need to motivate them to action. Okay. Think about this too. It works really well for leadership. Mm -hmm. It works really well for coaching. And so that would be the framework under which we start talking about, well, which of these principles would be most effective, for example, to build a relationship, overcome the uncertainty, or move people to action. Okay, all right, that makes sense, that makes sense. And again, by attending these workshops, uh, loyal readers, you'll be able to dive more into that material and get a better understanding of that. Um, so you begin the next part of the uh, this section, which is mental shortcuts with a quote, which, again, I love the quotes that you have in the book. And this is from William Taylor, who's the co-founder of Fast Company magazine. And it's from an article he wrote called Permission Marketing. And it's this. This year, the average consumer will see or hear one million marketing messages. That's almost 3000 per day. And the, what the most most shocking thing about this quote is, it's from 1998. Now, with the internet and social media, the estimate is high as 5,000 per day now, which to me honestly sounds a little low since 22 years ago was 3,000. And now with people spending the majority of their day on a computer or on their cell phone, it has to be higher. Do you believe that that number 5,000 is high, low, or about right? Um. It's probably a little bit low because marketers keep finding more and more creative ways to get their uh, message, their brand, their name in front of us. And, and I'm sure that some people are thinking, no way, there's just no way. And, and that, I think, for the most part, shows how little actually hits our conscious thinking, but it is there impacting our subconscious. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't think about if you watch YouTube, how many different ads that pop up or how many... Uh, you know, ads you see when watching TV or, you know, listening to the radio or even a podcast, you may get one or two during a podcast as mm -hmm. well. Um, so you go on to write about the fact that no one can realistically process that many marketing messages per day. Like you just said, um, there are two individuals that you cite. The first is Martin Lindstrom, who authored the book, Biology, Truth and Lies, about why we buy, who said that 85% of what you do every day is non-conscious. Mm -hmm. And the second is Leonard Mil Miladnow. Miladnow. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, the author of the book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. And he puts that number at 95%. So in the book, you basically say, let's split the difference and we'll say it's 90% or nine out of 10 decisions. Right. So what this boils down to is that many choices we make don't require a lot of effort. One example that you write about is a person's daily commute to work. And so driving at its core, it's not an easy task as there are many decisions that need to be made. But when we drive to work most days, we don't remember much about the drive because we are essentially on autopilot. So what are some of the decisions that people are making in business that are these autopilot decisions? Are there kind of ones that are fairly common that people will make that you have observed in your years of coaching? Well, 
these principles of influence actually show how we how we do that. Uh, for example, when we start talking about consensus, otherwise known as social proof, how it's very easy to follow the crowd. Almost without thinking, we just normally go along. Uh, an example of that would, would be when you go into a business organization, you will quickly assess what the norms are, and it might mm -hmm. be for dress, for um, language, and different things like that, and you will quickly conform to that almost without thinking. You'll just mm -hmm. naturally start dressing the way people do, talking the way people do. Um, it, that will start to play into how decisions are made within that organization. Uh, all of those things, we quickly learn them. We relegate them to the subconscious because thinking is hard work and therefore it makes our lives easier. I'd say one other example is um, principle of scarcity, that people are mo or, um, more motivated by what they may lose versus what they may gain. So a tremendous amount of managerial decision-making isn't focused on the upside and what we could do with what's the downside. Uh, maybe we should avoid this thing. And it happens rapidly at the subconscious level. Yeah, regarding like uh, when you were saying about someone coming into an organization and adopting the language, I've noticed in my own life uh, with new friends that I make or acquaintances that I meet, um, eventually I will, you know, uh, somehow take on some of their vernacular when I'm speaking just with them, but with other people I use different vernacular. So it's interesting to see how that kind of plays into your subconscious. So this phenomenon occurs with our thought process. You write that in order to maintain our sanity and make it through the day, we need these mental shortcuts. And you conclude this part by writing, bottom line, we need mental shortcuts to deal with the complexity of life and the principles of influence explain many of the mental shortcuts people use. Now, before we get into each of the seven principles, do you have a favorite one or one you gravitate more towards? No, I typically tell people it's situational. If I, let's say I'm very good at relating and very good with this principle of liking, there there are some people who don't really care too much about being your friend or how much you like them or how much they like you. And you need to understand that um, and then be versatile enough to understand which other principles might be most impacting. So while there may be some that are more natural for me, I wouldn't say that there are any that are a favorite because I, I try to adapt to the situation. Okay. And it's kind of gets back to in the first episode where we talked about uh, the five tool player and being able to utilize right. individual or multiple things rather than just relying on one strength. Right. All right. So the first principle that you write about is reciprocity. And the quote that you use comes from Zig Ziglar. And it's, you can get everything you want in life if you will just help other people get what they want. Mm -hmm. So reciprocity is a mutual exchange and a commonly used phrase is you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And you write that when someone does something for you, you feel obligated to do something for them. And the loyal readers will understand this principle and realize that they use it in their daily lives. But I don't think that they may, they may not fully understand how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. And you write about several examples in the book, which is found on page 14, about how the principle of reciprocity works. And so the first is, have you ever invited someone to a social gathering because they invited you to an event first? The second is, if you've ever been to a home party like Pampered Chef or Mary Kay, did you buy something because you felt bad not doing so, especially after you were served food and given a free gift? And the third is, during the holidays, have you ever bought 
Christmas wrapping paper cards or some other items from neighborhood kids because their parents bought similar items from your kids in the past. Now, I'm sure everyone answered yes to at least one of those questions or something similar to that, which means that we've all been influenced by the principle of reciprocity. So you write about how um, to apply this principle to people's lives and that this uh, is person has to take the initiative and act first. So for the loyal readers, can you give us an example of how this would apply in, sta- in sales? So I understand the concept of how this principle works, but I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how this would apply in sales or business. I can ha- see how to apply my personal life, but mm-hmm. how does this principle apply to sales or business? Well, I mean, a simple thing when somebody walks into your agency, Josh, mm-hmm. if um if somebody behind the, the the desk or counter, whoever is greeting them, says something like, "Boy, it's a it's a hot day out there. Would you like me to get you something to drink?" and and they get a, a cold drink and they bring it to them, that kicks off reciprocity. That's a that seems like a small act, but that small act starts to change how somebody thinks and feels about you and your agency. Um, compare that to the agency that never ever does that. That person has taken one small step in in your direction. Another way of engaging this too is. I always tell people you you don't want to be so easy to do business with that people don't have skin in the game. Otherwise, it's right they've got nothing on the line. You've done everything. They can easily say no. But when you point out what you've done for them, so if you were that potential customer and I said, you know, Josh, I normally don't do this for most of our customers, but I and then I talk about something I did special so that I could get you. Uh, the most competitive quote possible, that act of letting you know what I've done is going to trigger something in you that that makes you more likely to ultimately say yes to me than if I never, ever mentioned having done something extra for you. So um, you never want to brag, but it's okay to point out that you've gone the extra mile and here's what you did for this person because it creates that like, wow, that was really nice of them. Okay. All right. That makes sense. In your first example, would you say that that person, the receptionist or whoever that greeted the person, that's non-sales selling? Is that something similar that yeah. we talked about in the first episode? Yeah. There's no exchange of dollars there, but that mm-hmm. is certainly moving somebody in the direction that you want. You want them to feel good about you, feel good about your agency, those small things that you continually do that maybe others don't that builds momentum in in that direction. And let me say this too, that Mm -hmm. just because something is quote free, doesn't mean it's perceived as a gift. So let me ask you this, Josh, have you ever stayed at a Doubletree hotel? Uh, Not that I can remember. Uh, No, I don't think so. Doubletree is famous for their uh, chocolate chip cookies. When you check in, you mm-hmm. get this warm cookie. I mean, so they're checking mm-hmm. you in, they hand you this cookie. Um, people rave about Doubletree cookies. The Embassy Suites, another fine hotel, they put cookies out. So as I walk in, I can grab them. If I'm walking out, I can grab them. But people don't perceive the cookies at Embassy Suites in the same way they do the Doubletree. And I think it really comes down to that act of actually giving it to you when you're checking mm-hmm. in you feel like they gave you something, not just, oh, that's out there, and if I want it, I can take it. With your agency, if somebody walks in the door, you never want to say, wow, it's hot out there, Um, help yourself. 
to a cold beverage. You want that person to say, let me get you something and hand it to them. That's what triggers this principle and makes it feel like, wow, that was nice what they did. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying that. And I may have to stay at a double tree <laughs> next time for, next time I travel. Yeah. So. And, and, and Josh, I want to point this out too, that mm -hmm. um, that may seem like a small thing, but these nuances and how we engage these principles make a big difference because the person who might have heard this and just set free Coke or pop out for customers who come in and they're not noticing the response that they would have hoped for, it's because they're really not engaging this principle by actually giving that gift. It's the, the concept of going from a service mentality to an experience yeah. mentality and how you differentiate yourself yep, exactly. from that. So you continue to write about how this principle um, concessions have to be made. So which takes me back to our first episode and the story you told about your wife asking uh, you if she could go to Scotland to play golf. And when she, you hesitated, she asked if she could go to Florida to play golf, which you said yes to. Now, loyal readers, I want to say that Brian does not tell his wife what to do. <laughs> but in this case, she asked him if he would be okay with her doing that. So in that story, did your wife use the principle of reciprocity since she compromised on what she wanted or a different principle? It was it was two things. It was reciprocity and then something that we'll probably talk about called the contrast phenomena. When she asked about going to Scotland, mm -hmm. that was that was a huge ask. I mean, that's a big investment of time and money and things. And, and I wanted to go. And so that's why I said, well, I'd prefer you not go because I want to go and it's not the right time. So then she moved from this big request down to this seemingly small request. But when she conceded, it's mm -hmm. very natural for us to concede in response. And, and for salespeople who are listening, you understand this is the basis of bartering. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yes, yeah, she, she very thoughtfully um, said, what would make it easiest for Brian to say yes to going to Florida? If I would have said yes to Scotland, she'd have been over the moon. Um, yeah. We also knew that going to Florida would be a much easier conversation by employing that psychology. And I teach this stuff, Josh, mm -hmm. it went right over my head. I was not <laughs> thinking, oh, he's trying to set this thing up. So mm -hmm. if I can teach it and miss it, I guarantee everybody listening to this, there are many, many times when these principles are being used and you're not even aware of it. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. Um, so you conclude this principle by writing that you don't advocate giving to get because that sounds to me like manipulation, which we discussed in the first episode, but rather you advocate giving because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And loyal readers, when you think about reciprocity, think of the word giving. Mm -hmm. All right. So the second principle you write about is liking. And the quote comes from Jeffrey Gitmore. All things being equal, people want to do business with their friends. All things being not quite so equal, people still want to do business with their friends. Sure. So you begin this chapter by writing, people prefer to say yes to those they know and like. When I read this, I thought you forgot the word trust. So is, that ha is having trust critical to this principle or does it apply to a different principle? Well, we talk about trust under the principle of authority. And so we can tap into that when we get to that principle. Okay. Absolutely. Trust. It doesn't matter how much I like you if I can't trust you. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Perfect. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, so then you write um, about 
well, what's next is that it's not obvious how to get people to like you or like you more, but actually the key is for us to like the other person. People can tell if you genuinely like them and once they sense it, they'll naturally reciprocate it. So which gets back to something that we briefly discussed in the first episode about learning to trust your gut. Um, and you provide the loyal readers with three things to focus on to have people like you. And the first is that they have to have um, something in common with you. The second is give genuine compliments. And the third is to work cooperatively together. So let's begin with the first one, which is common. And you write about people who like the same sports teams, drive the same car from the same hometown, et cetera, will lead to a natural connection. And what the loyal readers need to do is keep an eye out for things that they have in common with others. And your advice when you work with salespeople is to do research about the person they're going to meet with. And when you do have them look around their office to see what things you have in common. Uh, I don't know if you've had this yet. Have you encountered doing like some sort of Zoom call with our current environment where you needed to try to look around what was in the background of the person to find something in common? Or have you just relied on maybe the research that you did when you're having that or trying to use this common, uh, you know, uh, thing? If, if at all possible, I do some research beforehand. I, I try okay. to connect on LinkedIn and look for whatever I can because that will just make it easier. And if there's nothing in the background, if somebody's got maybe a fake background, um, then I might not be able to glean anything from that. But, you know, Josh, in just the short time that you and I have known each other, you may not be thinking about this, but there's a tremendous amount that we have in common. We both mm -hmm. are in the insurance insurance industry. Um, I work with salespeople. You're in sales. You like to read. I can see that in your bookshelf behind. We both know Jason. Um, we both share the same uh, faith. So mm -hmm. there's a whole lot for me to dig into if we're just having a casual conversation because I've paid attention to things that you've said and the things that I've seen and the things that I've learned. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I, I set up the office so that, that, that people can see it rather than just the, uh, the boring, you know, wall that I have just over here, uh, off camera. Um, so the second thing, um, that you write about is compliments. And there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln, which says, everybody likes a compliment. And because we like compliments so much, we're prone to believe them even when we know that they are just pure flattery. Mm -hmm. And when you look for the good in others, you end up finding more good qualities, which will lead you to liking them more. Um, can you give us an example of when you gave someone a compliment to that led them to saying yes, this could be in business or in your personal life, um, just give the loyal readers an idea of how this would work? Well, I, I will give an example of somebody that I worked for Mm -hmm. and how a compliment meant a tremendous amount, and then it came around to be very beneficial. So I worked for a, for a lady named Dorothy early in my career when I was with State Auto Insurance, and Dorothy was very rah-rah like a cheerleader. And that didn't really resonate with me because I was a, a football guy, and I was used to a coach who swore like a sailor because he had been in the Navy. And um, so it just didn't resonate, right? Rah-rah with, with this like hardcore athlete thing. But then Many, many years later, as I looked back on my career and I realized, you know what, Dorothy was doing it the right way. In business, employees don't want to be treated like a coach treats players in, in the locker room. And her always being positive and looking on the bright side, all of that um, was really good. And so I sat down one day and I wrote her an email. 
And I mm -hmm. basically said, you know, Dorothy, when I worked for you, I didn't appreciate your style. But now I realize that having been in the business world for over 20 years, that the way that you're doing things is the right way. And I basically said this towards the end. I said, if there was anybody out there, said there's only a handful of people that I would want to work for in this company if I wasn't working for John and you are one of those people. Later, she told me, Josh, that when she got that email, she cried. Mm. And it really showed me how people don't say thank you enough and they don't pay compliments enough. Here's, here's this person who's been doing it right for decades and, and a simple email expressing that made her cry told me she wasn't getting probably the, the praise that she deserved. Now, here's the, the cool part. Uh, years later, I was assigned to be her business coach. I did not have to do anything to build trust, liking any of that. She knew when there was nothing on the line how I felt about her. And so we immediately went into a, a relationship where she wanted to hear what I had to say. She trusted me. She knew how I felt about her. This is, this is I think, a prime example of we do the right things because they're the right things to do, not because we want to get something out of it. But it's amazing how life tends to bring those good things back to you because you've first been the person to give by way of reciprocity, to reach out and do things to come to like the people that you work with. Oh, that, that's an amazing story. And I have a challenge now for the loyal readers, and that would be to think about the people in your life who have had an impact and at the time you didn't appreciate them or you didn't understand. So I would challenge you to do what Brian did, send them an email, give them a call, send them a text and thank them for that. And you will have it pay dividends in the future and, and don't do it out of the idea of trying to get something, um, just to get something, but do it out of a, a pure and genuine place. So uh, that's my challenge for you loyal readers today. So the third thing to focus on in getting someone to like you is a cooperative effort, and it allows people to set aside their differences and work together. Um, is this how people you may not like, you know, from the beginning, um, things that you don't have in common, you can't find something to compliment them on, but you focus on working together cooperatively and that can lead you to liking them? Yeah, because, I mean, if we think about maybe when we were, if we played uh, sports in high school, there might've been somebody on the team that you didn't particularly like, but if that person did something to contribute to a win, it started to change your thinking about them because you had to work together. I think of a time where, I was working with the claims department and the individual who was leading the claims training, I really got a sense that he didn't want me involved. It was like, this is my stuff. You're the sales guy. What are you doing here? Then we got thrown into a situation where we had to go visit all of the claims offices over an eight week period. So we were kind of on the road for about six of eight weeks and by working together and then offering compliments and, and connecting on what we had in common, but really by spending that time together in airports and cars and presenting and, and things like that, we bridged this gap and we are now really, really good friends. Where mm. when we first started, I, I got the total impression the guy didn't like me at all because he thought I was invading his territory. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing spending time with, with people and, and over time you just end up connecting together when mm -hmm. at first you didn't think. 
Um, so you then write about how if a person wants to get more accomplished at work or in life, try to like everyone you come into contact with by mm-hmm. focusing on similarities, making a conscious effort to look for their good traits mm-hmm. and to work in harmony with them. And loyal readers, when you think of liking, focus on the word friend. Can I say something before we leave this one, Josh? Sure. Because for me, this one's the game changer when it comes to manipulation. Because there, there's always people who say, oh, persuasion, influence, that's just manipulation. Now, I'm going to put this out there. And I believe that the people who are listening to this podcast would say, I would never manipulate my friends. So then my encouragement is make as many friends as you can. Use this principle not to get people to like you, but to come to like those people. Because, yes, they will like you if you cheer for the same sports team. They will like you if you pay them a compliment. But you'll also like them more when you find out they cheer for your team, went to your university. You will like them more when you consciously find good things about them and you express those. You're convincing yourself. So the key here is that I would use this to come to like those other people. And the more that I come to know and like them, the less likely it would ever be that I would potentially try to manipulate them into doing something. It also changes my giving by way of reciprocity, because then I'm looking for things that will truly help you, Josh. Mm-hmm. And, and when you sense this, when you sense like, God, that guy, Brian, he really likes me, it totally changes how you receive whatever I might either give or whatever I might express would I, that I think would be in your best interest. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And thank you for, for adding that before we, we move to the next one. Yeah, that makes sense and something for myself and the loyal readers to think about um, how they can apply that and uh, be, be effective with that. Um, so the third principle you write about is authority. And the quote comes from Plato and it's the wisest have the most authority. Mm-hmm. And you begin this chapter by writing, if an expert says it, then it must be true. And this is the basis for the authority principle. And because of the times that we are living in right now, we're overloaded with information and we don't have time to research it. So we look for shortcuts mm-hmm. and one of the shortcuts is seeing what experts have to say. So you write about the example of when a doctor or fitness trainer tells you to make a change, you're more likely to comply than if a friend makes the same suggestion. Or if you happen to work in a family business and your mother or father tells you something, you're less likely to listen to them than if an expert tells you the same thing. But of course, that never happens in my own agency. Um, So what type of advice can you give to the loyal readers who do work in a family business and struggle with listening to one another because they're family? Is this something that you've encountered in your career as a coach? Well, I mean, my wife, I mean, that's family. There are things that if I tell her, there's no way she's going to pay attention to. But Mm -hmm. if you tell her, she's going to say, wow, that's a a great idea. Um, (laughs) There's just that natural husband-wife thing. There's that natural parent to child. Um, and and I, I often talk about this that with golf as an example. When I learned to play golf, I learned to play at a place called Muirfield Village, Jack Nicholas's Golf Club, oh, yeah. where they hold the memorial. Uh, so I got good instruction. And I don't play much at all, but if you saw me swing a golf club, you'd be like, wow, that guy knows how to play golf. Um, my wife, one day I gave, I shared with her some information about um, 
a golf example I used in some sales training. And then several weeks later, she's reading a book and she goes, oh, listen to what Corey Pavin says. For your listeners who don't know, Corey Pavin won the U.S. Open in 1990. Great golfer. And she reads this paragraph. It's almost exactly what I said. So I told her, I said, I, I told you that. She said, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Remember, I came home from the training event and, and she had no recollection of it. And I finally said, oh, if Corey Pavin says it, it's true. But when I say it, it's not. Mm-hmm. But I'm smart enough to know, Josh, that anybody would listen to Corey Pavin, U.S. Open winner and not Brian Ahern, sales trainer, bogey, sometimes double bogey golfer. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the reality. What I said was every bit as true as what Corey Pavin wrote. So sometimes it's not what we say, but it's who's saying it. Mm. People say the same thing. Somebody's viewed as an expert, they're believed. Somebody's not viewed as an expert, they're doubted. And so it's critical for people to get their expertise in front of, like in your case, potential customers, so that they really think like, wow, I know Josh is an insurance agent. I mean, mm-hmm. That's the only person I'm going to get my quote from is an insurance agent. But but if they know certain things about you, um, they might say, wow, you're you're more informed than the others that I've been talking to. So they pay more attention. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on hand VAs actually merged? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him. I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia. We saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual Intel. That's with two L's. That's virtual I N T E L L dot com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, recruiting, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel cast certified. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I've, uh, and, and sometimes the experts that you listen to, if they don't hold the same beliefs, you may doubt an expert because they are disputing what you believe as truth, whether it's, and it doesn't matter what that person is talking about. It doesn't make what they say any less true. It's just if you accept it or not. Well, yes. I mean, and, and that goes to the principle of consistency that we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, we when we hold a view, we also see that as part of who we are. And so it can be very hard to dislodge people from current beliefs. Um, it's not that it can't be done, but it is certainly not easy. And we see this right now in the, in the um, hyper-political environment that we're in. If your, quote, expert isn't on your side, then you will find every way to dismiss them. Oh, persons from Harvard, Harvard's a liberal, you know, education platform. And so they'll just dismiss everything related to Harvard. The other side may do the very same thing to uh, a conservative 
uh, university. So it, it, we're just extremely polarized right now. Yes, we are. We are. And hopefully we can come to some sort of consensus in the future. Um, so you continue on in this section by writing about how you make authority work for you, that knowledge and trustworthiness are qualities that are associated with experts and that you can increase your trustworthiness by admitting a weakness early on. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of how this would work in the loyal readers, either their personal or professional life with admitting a weakness and then um, it helping them to increase the trustworthiness to someone in their personal life or someone in business? Yeah. Well, virtually everything has good and bad, positive and negative. Mm -hmm. How you frame that. So, for example, if somebody comes to your agency, Josh, it may ultimately be more expensive for them to buy their insurance from you. Um, and not just because it's more expensive, but because of the services that you're going to offer, the research you're going to do, the company you're going to put them with, there's a whole host of things that might make it more expensive than going to Geico.com or something like that, right? Right. Um, and so acknowledging something like that early. So if somebody comes in, if you were that potential customer and I say, you know, Josh, if you're like uh, other customers, uh, you, you probably have looked online and, and you're going to probably find that we're a little bit more expensive than if you were to buy from, say, Geico or something like that. However, and that's the key, using a word like however or but to transition into your strengths. And then you start talking about what they are getting for what they're paying for. You know, maybe it's more coverage and higher limits. It's having that person that they can look at face to face because, you know, with Geico, you're going to be talking to somebody on the phone who you may never talk to again. There's a host of things that you can then start to talk about as your strengths. But by admitting the weakness first, you gain the credibility because they might be thinking, oh, this is going to be expensive. You're not denying that. You're putting that right out there up front. Now, imagine if you reversed it. If you tried to talk about all the great reasons of doing business with you as an independent agent, but were 15% more expensive than Geico, right? It mm -hmm. takes the wind out of your sails. Some people will feel like you were trying to hide that, especially if they had to bring it up. So what I would encourage the listeners to is, Whenever you know that you've got something that's going to probably come to the surface as an objection or a weakness in what you're offering, strategically think about how can I bring that up relatively early to show mm -hmm. that I'm trustworthy and then use a transitional word like but or however and segue into the strengths of what it is that we're offering and you will have more people, not everybody, but you will have a lot more people ultimately saying yes to you. That makes sense because, yeah, not everyone because it's not, again, a magic bullet or a magic wand mm -hmm. um, or silver bullet to, to get everyone to do exactly what you want when you want. Um, so you then go on to write that another way to establish authority is to cite other experts, which is one of the reason you cite experts such as Albert Einstein, Aristotle and Abraham Lincoln in your book. And there are also other ways that you can influence your authority that you may not realize. And it's through the way you dress, the title that you have, the credentials that you have obtained, the trappings of life, such as jewelry or the type of car you drive, and the amount of experience that you have. Now, with these things, do you think that they are as crucial today as they may have been in years past? Or has society kind of moved those things down? on the, I guess, the, the totem pole of, of importance when they're making a decision. Certain things are based on trends. 
Uh -huh. how, how we dress, very different than it was in the 1950s, different than it was in the 60s. Uh, we are certainly in a period where um, dress may not seem to be as important. Um, but I would say this, um, Mark Zuckerberg could walk on stage at any conference in jeans and a hoodie and be completely accepted because, wow, that's Mark Zuckerberg. You or I do that. People might go, who's this guy? Who does he think he is coming out in jeans? You know, look around and people are more dressed up. So for something like dress, the advice is always this. Consider your audience and try to dress one level up. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to, you, you want to be perceived as a little bit different. Uh, you know, if I go down to the Ohio State University, which is about 20 minutes down the road, I mm -hmm. am not going to dress like 22 year old students. I'm not mm -hmm. 22. I'm not, I'm not one of their crowd, but I'm not going to go down in a three piece suit and tie for sure. Right. I'm, but I'm going to dress in a way that says, uh, look, this guy's a little different than us. He's had some success. I should probably pay attention. Um, you know, if I dress the way I do normally, you know, during COVID, flip flops and shorts, people are going to look at me and go, what's with the guy? Doesn't he have any uh, business acumen to know how he should dress? So all of this to say, it still matters. It's different, but it still matters. And I always, when I'm going to go somewhere and do a public presentation, I'm always considering who's the audience. How can I dress one level up? Um, I make sure shoes are polished, all of those things. I, I like to say control the controllables. I don't want somebody to be distracted by something that I could have taken care of myself because now they're not focused on the message. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, now for loyal readers, when you think of authority, think of the word experts. So the fourth principle you write about is consensus. And the quote comes actually from the Crest toothpaste ad, which is, Four out of five dentists recommend Crest. Right. So you write that the principle of consensus relates to the ancient wisdom of their safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and the example that you use is how Allstate used this principle when they created an ad where the spokes spokesperson stood in the Rose Bowl and told viewers that 110,000 people would gather there on Saturday for a game. And that last year, Allstate could fill the stadium 10 times over with the number of people who switched to them. And when I heard that, I thought 1.1 million, that seemed kind of low. Did that, does that seem kind of low for Allstate only getting 1.1 million new new customers over a one-year period? Or is that just me kind of hoping since they are one of our direct competitors? I, I, I don't have a basis for that. you know. And, yeah. I, and I often say 1.1 million for some people might be like, wow. But mm -hmm. if their quote ratio is only 10%, and that, that actually might be pretty good, they, mm -hmm. they would have had to have quoted what, um, more than 11 or 12 million yeah. To, yeah. to ultimately get that. So that really, that 1.1 million is only those who actually made the switch to get bigger context. You need to know what mm -hmm. was that close ratio. If it was, you know, if it goes down to 5%, then they they had, you know, 22, 25 million quotes. That's yeah. a lot of people responding to a potential ad. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That uh, the, the little bit of com competition in me thought hmm, that, that seems low and, and, and I'm happy to hear, hear that. Um, so another example you write about relates to the loyal reader's personal life and how consensus impacts a teenager's decision. And for many teenagers, they look to one another about how to act, how to dress and how to talk. And it's the peer pressure that can positively or negatively affect how a teenager lives out their life. Mm -hmm. And you then write about how understanding 
um, consensus can help us in two ways. And the first is sharing how lots of people are already doing what you ask. Mm -hmm. And the second is that others just like them are doing it. And this reminds me of the first book I reviewed on the Explain This Book to Me podcast um, with my guest, Jason Cass. And we discussed the idea of how to sell insurance online and how we could tell people that people just like you decided to purchase this type of insurance. Mm -hmm. So when you worked at State Auto, did you guys ever explore that sort of sales, I guess, tactic where you said, based on X, Y, and Z, people just like you did, you know, A, B, and C. Did you ever do anything similar to that? Um, nothing. I mean, you're advertising, I guess, you know, when you're creating advertising for agents, you're mm-hmm. going to get what you think is the most representative photos of individuals who would okay. typically buy those products. Uh, so in that sense, um, but because the product is sold through the independent insurance agent, it really was up to him or her mm-hmm. to, to be able to convey that. And that's where, you know, what I do and I would work with agents, it's, it'd be one thing, Josh, if somebody comes in and, and they're looking to move their personal insurance to you. I'm going to assume that's probably your biggest base of customers. And that's where you have that opportunity to say, you know, uh, uh, here at the agency, we insure, you know, thousands of homes or, you know, thousands of cars, something like that to have people right. go like, wow, a lot of people do business here. But when you get into something that's more specific, if somebody comes in because they're a small business owner, let's say they own a grocery store, they don't really care about all the homes and autos you insure. So this, again, is the nuance. Just because it's a big number doesn't mean that it's going to be motivating. What will be far more motivating is to say, you know, here at the agency, we insure more than two dozen grocery stores. Most are about the same size and revenue stream as yours. And you keep talking. So very conversationally, you talked about that. But that puts in the mind of somebody like, wow, if two dozen people like me in this business are placing their insurance here, I should pay attention. This agency must have something that others don't. Because I was the only grocery store at the last agency that I was with. So it's it's. It's just very conversationally, truthfully putting on the table, we're insuring people and businesses that are just like yours. And you're using the last principle we talked about, authority, with telling someone that we work with other people just like you. So therefore, we have to be an expert because the last agent that I worked with, I was the only type of client with them. Right. There's going to come the natural assumption if you're doing business with two dozen businesses that are like mine, you probably know what you're doing. And then if you're able to bring in other things like, and we have a specialty program because we worked with a carrier, we're the only uh, agency in town that, that offers this program. Now you're getting even deeper scarcity. You have something nobody else has. You have this tight relationship with a company. Uh, They must trust you. It's a specialty program. All of that creates a momentum to say, I should really strongly consider putting my business with you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And loyal readers, when you think of consensus, focus on the word crowds. So the fifth principle you write about is consistency. And the quote comes from Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, Happiness is when you 
is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Mm -hmm. So you write that people generally want to be consistent in word and deed, and people also want to be consistent in what um, they've, they've said that they believe or value. And so I actually have a question earlier than normal for you, and that is, how would the loyal readers change their opinion on something and not be called like a flip-flopper? And so I'm thinking more along the lines of someone who's held an opinion or believe that's been they've been very vocal about, but then later in life changed their mind. Um, and given our current political environment, you know, how politicians are often called out for changing their stances on policies from ones that they held you know, early, early on in your life, because you would hope that someone who is 20 years old, you know, by the time that they're 40, 50 mm -hmm. may have changed or matured in some of their, you know, beliefs. So mm -hmm. do you have any advice on how someone can go about changing their opinion um, and not be called out by others? Well, first of all, I would say um, be careful about how you vocalize your current opinions. Okay. I, I do my best to refrain from putting out political views unless I'm just challenging the truthfulness because I hate seeing manipulation, but putting out things like political views um, because they do change over time. You encounter new information and you might say, gosh, you know, I thought this once, but now I, I view that differently. But when you put something into the public space, you tend to feel like you need to identify it more because very likely somebody will attack that position. Why would you believe that? And they, so what do you do? You just naturally defend. And the more you defend, the more you root yourself into what you believe. So be very careful about what you're putting out in the public space regarding your opinions. Um, the second thing, I guess, if I were talking to you and I and you and I had held the same opinion on something um, a while ago and my opinion changed, I would appeal to you via liking, you know, hey, you know, Josh, you and I, we've known each other for a long time. And, and, and I used to think on this position just like you think currently, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to say, yeah, Brian, I know him. I like him. He's, he's just like me. I trust him. I would use questions to say, you know, Josh, isn't it a good thing that from time to time we change? I mean, mm -hmm. have, have you ever said or done something and look back in hindsight and realized it was wrong? I mean, yeah. when I ask questions that, that you know you have to say yes to because we've all made mistakes, we've all believed things that were incorrect at one time, um, I start to build a little momentum and say, you know, so Josh, that's where I was. I, I really felt like this was the right thing, but I've done some research. Now I can bring in some authority. Here's some of the sources that I looked at, and this is what's changing my opinion about the situation that we're in. You know, does that at least make sense to you, right? Mm -hmm. So very conversationally, um, I'm not going to change anybody's opinion out on Facebook. In fact, I've got a chapter in the book, Why Facebook Doesn't Change Anybody's Opinion. But, but I can potentially change your opinion when you and I have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and I'm asking a lot of questions and I allow you to ask questions and we actually have a dialogue. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense to, yeah, to pose those questions to help the person understand why why you've changed your opinion on a certain topic. Um, so getting back to the book, you write about that people generally want to be consistent in word. Um, I'm sorry, let's start over. 
You then write about how when you're speaking, you'll ask the audience about how they felt when they missed a promise. So you generally hear the words bad, guilty, terrible, and awful. And the reason that this is good for this principle is because people are likely to follow through on what they said, and they don't want to be inconsistent with their prior promise to you. And you write about the example of telling your child to clean their room. And you write that many children may not want to do it right away. And when you ask them why their room wasn't clean, they may respond with things such as, I didn't hear you, or I didn't know you wanted me to do it now, or I was going to do it later. And your advice to get the child to do it is actually to ask it in the form of a question rather than telling them. So will you please clean your room? And then the key is to make sure that you hear the response, yes. Um, and then as a side note, and this is actually something that you mentioned a little earlier in the episode. Um, this relates to a personal opinion of mine and that if you say please and thank you to your spouse or significant other, you will have a much healthier and happier relationship mm-hmm. with them. Um, now, Brian, would you mind telling the story about the study from the book Influence, Silence and Practice about the radio on the blanket and what happened with that for the loyal readers? Yeah, so they, um, everything that Josh and I are talking about is backed up by empirical data. My book does not go deep into that. My book is about the practical application. Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, Science, and Practice, uh, cites many of the studies that back this up. And one of them was a situation where they went to a public beach and they would go and put down a blanket with a radio, a little portable radio, next to somebody, and they did this 20 times over the course of the day, and each time the person who set down the blanket after a little while would get up and leave, and then they had somebody who was part of the experiment who would come along and take the radio. And they wanted to see how often would people respond. So, you know, if you're a listener here, you imagine that uh, a stranger just came up, they put a blanket down, there's a radio, you're just sitting there minding your own business, this person walks up, picks up this radio and walks away. Um, Only four times out of 20 did anybody intervene in any way and say like, hey, excuse me, that's not your radio. Mm -hmm. Only four. At a different time, 19 out of 20 people responded. And the difference was when they put the blanket down in the radio, after a while, when they got up, they'd look at that person and say, excuse me, I'm going to go take a walk. Would you watch my things? And everybody Mm -hmm. said yes to that. Now, how would you feel if somebody came back and goes, where's my radio? And you're right. like, oh, uh, somebody came and took it. Well, you mm-hmm. should watch my things, right? Mm-hmm. So that simple act of asking the question and getting somebody to say yes got them to actually intervene. Some people physically grabbed the person who was walking away with the radio and said, that's not yours. Wow. So, It's amazing. The simple act of asking a question to gain someone's commitment changed these people from four out of 20 to 19 out of 20. Now think about all the times during the day when you tell people what to do. And again, they have all kinds of excuses. I didn't hear you. I was busy. I never said I would do it. All of these excuses. But when you stop and you say, Josh, would you be able to get me those lost runs by Tuesday? Mm-hmm. You're going to say, yes, I can. Or if you say, hey, I'm, I'm really busy. I won't be able to. I'd say, I get it, Josh. Everybody's busy. Is there any chance you could get them to me before the end of the day, Wednesday? Because without them, I'm not going to be able to get you your quote on time. 
people mm. are going to start searching. You know, when, when I ask, would you be able to, you're going to start searching to find, can I somehow get that to him? That is a dramatic, a dramatically different thought process than me telling you what to do. And you're maybe just totally disengaged. That makes sense. Uh, and I, I actually started using this in my own agency because um, I'd read the book, uh, you know, prior. And I went from asking or telling people in the agency what to do and instead asking them, you know, in the email, hey, can you take care of such and such for me um, because I don't have time right now at the moment or, or, or something to that effect. And it's been uh, much better received than saying, hey, I need you to do X, Y and Z for me. Yeah, nobody likes to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. When you ask, they feel a sense of freedom. And when people then say yes, they view it as their voluntary choice and they're more committed to it. Exactly. Uh, now, loyal readers, when you think of consistency, think of the word or the phrase word and deed. Mm -hmm. um, now, the sixth principle you write about is scarcity. And the quote comes from Thomas Sowell. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. Mm -hmm. And you write that scarcity amounts to if I can't have it, then I want it. Mm -hmm. And the impact that scarcity has on people when they realize something may not be around or may be in short supply is pretty amazing. And this actually happened to me this past weekend. Um, so my wife and I, we were at Home Depot and with the fall approaching, uh, the home that we live in has a lot of trees around it. So we need to buy a backpack leaf blower uh, to be able to you know move them around. Um, and get them picked up. And since it was Labor Day weekend, we wanted to see if the one we were interested in was actually on sale. So we went and looked, it wasn't on sale. So I decided to look online at like Ace Hardware, Amazon Lowe's to see if it maybe was on sale there. And not only was not on sale at those three places, the price was actually $100 more. And so even though Home Depot wasn't advertising a sale, and we don't need it for a couple months. We went ahead and bought it because we were worried that the price was going to go up. Mm -hmm. And so the principle of scarcity won and Home Depot yeah. sold a backpack leaf blower to us sooner uh, than we had anticipated. Um, now, in the book, you actually give some examples as well about the principle of scarcity. And the first is, have you ever hurried out to a store because you heard a sale ends on Sunday, which is similar to what <laughs> I encountered? Did you ever buy a Disney DVD for your kids because you heard soon we'll be back in the Disney vault? And then three, ever noticed limited quantities in an ad, then decide to go ahead with the purchase. Mm -hmm. um, and just like I said yes to the principle of scarcity when I was at Home Depot, loyal readers, I'm sure you've said yes to at least one of those or something that is similar. Um, Brian, what I want to dive into with this principle is how are people motivated by the idea of losing something rather than gaining something. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about how that works as it relates to the principle of scarcity? And how do you feel that people who are motivated more by gain rather than loss, do those people tend to be more successful in life? Um, there's no research that I'm aware of to indicate. Okay. When it comes to when it comes to this principle, we are like all the principles, to one degree or another, we are all motivated by these principles. They've just helped humans survive over the millennia. It is almost within our DNA. When it comes to this principle, social psychologists theorize that going back over the course of evolution, that having an abundance of something would be wonderful. 
but mm -hmm. not having enough could be the difference between life and death. And so they theorized that people who were more sensitive to loss did a better job surviving. And when that's the case, they passed their genes down. When it comes to this principle, um, the study that I like to cite, because everybody clearly gets this, that the University of California did energy audits and they went back to homeowners with ideas to make their homes more energy efficient. With one group, they shared the ideas and they concluded the talk by saying, if you implement the ideas that we've shared with you, if you're like the typical homeowner, you will save about $180 next year on your electric bill. That's nice. You will, you will get more people implementing those ideas because they now realize they could save. But the question is, would more people implement those ideas if they were told they would lose? And so with another group, they gave the same recommendations, but they ended the talk by saying, if you don't implement these ideas that we've shared with you, if you're like the typical homeowner, you will lose about $180 next year because you'll overpay on your electric bill. And in that scenario, uh, two and a half times more people decided to implement the, um, or excuse me, it was 150% more people decided to implement wow. the, the changes. It's the same $180. I can talk about it as gain or savings. I can talk about it as loss or overpaying. But how I talk about it makes a difference. Now, for those who are listening, especially if you're doing anything in the financial services area, imagine, Josh, I say to you, I'm a financial advisor, and I say, Josh, um, you know, given your age, your income, and how many more years you say you're going to work, I ran some numbers. And if we can get you to save just 1% more, by my calculations, that'll be an extra $150,000 in your retirement account. Now, again, you're going to be motivated by that. Mm -hmm. The smart advisor would say, Josh, given your age, your income, and how many more years you say you're going to work, I ran some numbers. And if we don't find a way for you to save just 1% more, you're going to have given up $150,000 of your retirement account. Feels a little different, doesn't it? It does. It's, it does. It's like in your gut, it, it feels like it's yours. Mm -hmm. You will work harder to not lose what you perceive to be yours than you will to gain something. You don't feel worse off when you don't save the $180, but you feel worse when you think you've overpaid. And that's the language that we want people to think about. It's not about fear mongering. It's not about scare tactics. It's not about creating a false scarcity just to move people. It's about honestly alerting them to what's on the line if they don't act. And, and you will have a lot more people taking action by doing that than you will by saying, rah, 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 let me paint this picture of you for you of how beautiful your future is going to be. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And one of the examples is actually something we'll talk about in the next episode um, when we talk about the different tools in the tool belt that you can use. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for, for sharing that and giving a little bit of a preview for our next episode. Um, and loyal readers, when you think of scarcity, focus on the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. So the seventh and final principle you write about is unity. And the quote comes from Simon Sinek, which is together is better. And you write that some people may think of unity as the principle of liking, but on steroids. But the principle of unity is that the person focuses on what you have in common, and it's about a shared identity. Mm -hmm. You write that family is a natural form of unity and that there are things that we do for family that we wouldn't do for anyone else. And another example of unity is the military. 
Um, now, Brian, can you tell the loyal readers about your father who served in our country and what you write about in the book mm -hmm. about him? So my father served in the Marines from 1963 to 1968. Um, he did one tour over in Vietnam. He volunteered to go into the Marines. He wasn't drafted. And um, wow. because of that, an interesting fact, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, because he was stationed mm. in Hawaii for part of that time. But what I have noticed with my father ever since I was a boy, when my father met another Marine, particularly one who'd been in combat, I had this sense, even as a child, that he is closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. Mm. Now I understand why, because of this principle of unity. There's a shared identity among people within the military, particularly those who've gone through the trauma of combat. Very few people have actually been through that. And so it's it's almost this, I can look at you and I know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and you know, kind of like maybe you can do with your spouse after you've been married for a long time. You know what they're thinking, you know what they're feeling. People who experience unity, it's it's that same thing. And when you invoke this as a principle, when you uncover it, it's almost as if helping that other person is helping you. Mm. In in the in the course of evolution, helping a family member really was helping your whole genetic line continue on. Um, when it comes to things like um, um, religious organizations, you know, we, we talk about the body. And mm -hmm. what do people do? They, they, they go in and they kneel together, they pray together, they worship together, they mourn together, but it's the body. And so helping another person within that congregation is almost like helping you. That's where this is so much more than, oh, we have this in common. It is much, gotcha. much deeper. People feel like helping that other person is really helping me. And I know they would help me because it also helps them. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And and tell your father, thank you for his service for our country. Um, so you continue to write that unity can come from acting together. And the more we act in unity with someone, the closer that we feel, which mm -hmm. is obviously um, what your father feels when he meets a fellow uh, Marine. And in business, leaders will take their teams on retreats to help foster unity through different activities, such as a rope course. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were with State Auto, what types of things did they do to help foster unity within the company? Well, I, w when I worked there, mm -hmm. there really was a sense of family. Okay. People used that. There was a lot of people who worked there for decades you know, even even, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, 2010 to 20, there were so many people who spent most of, if not all of their careers there. And when you do that, you you see people who come in, get married, have children, sometimes deal with the death of a spouse, a loved one. You see all of the things that make up family. And, mm -hmm. and so there was there was a deep bond. And it's interesting that you bring this up today, because I was thinking about somebody that I worked with this morning when I was working out, I thought, you know, I don't feel the same loyalty at all to the company. And that's because so many of the people that I was so bonded to, they're not there anymore. So I feel like it's not, the, it's not the same company. A company is really primarily made of the people who work there and the connections that, that you have. So I think we felt that deep sense of unity because we were, we were together for so long. When I would travel to our field offices, which would be two, three, four times a year and interact with people there, they got to see me, have dinner with me, breakfast with me. I always made it a point to stay as long as I could. And, and I was very fortunate that somebody 
who uh, ran the sales area told me one time, he said, you can't stay in enough Hampton Inns to put a dent in this company's expense ratio. Just do what you think is right. So I would typically fly out on a Monday and I'd fly home on a Friday because I knew it was important to sit down and have breakfast, to have lunch, to have dinner, to do drinks, to maybe work out with somebody. Because the more time we spent together like that, the more mm -hmm. they got to know, like, and trust me. And if they did, then the more likely they were to put into practice the things that I was learning and teaching, which ultimately helped the company. Well, that's that, that's great. And it gets back to the, the phrase, it's not business, it's not personal, it's business is completely false, especially mm -hmm. in, in my mind. Yeah. Um, because a company is made up of people and people are personal. Yeah, and I'll share one, one quick story to this too. Mm -hmm. When I would go to Arizona, um, I became very close with a, a field person out there. His name's Dan. And I stopped staying at hotels. I would stay with Dan and his wife, Juliet. And it was so nice to wake up in a friend's home, have breakfast and coffee, hit the road and do our thing. Um, but you don't see very many companies where they're fostering those types of relationships where employees will forego staying in a nice hotel because they'd rather stay with their coworker who's become a friend right. and that coworker will willingly bring them in into mm -hmm. their home. That's the sense of deep friendship and, and unity that we were able to foster over the years, which frankly I think is gone now. Uh, yeah, I would, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. And loyal readers, when you think of the word unity, think of the phrase, we is me. And with that, we've actually reached the end of today's episode. So thank you, Brian, for joining me for book three, episode two of Influence People. Brian, can you remind the loyal readers how to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, my website, which is influencepeople.biz, go out there and you see links to my book, videos, all kinds of things. Uh, and certainly LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach out to me to connect on LinkedIn. Uh, it's always helpful if you say that you heard me on the podcast, but if you don't put a message in, you can be sure that I will reach back to you and say, how did you find me? Very good. Uh, now, loyal readers, please make sure that you're subscribed to Agency Intelligence Podcast. And if you have 90 seconds to spare today, would you please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast? Because when you do that, others just like yourself will find us and we'll be able to impact more people because of you. And if you haven't already purchased Brian's book, then check it out on his website or we'll have it um, in the show notes where you can click on a link to purchase it on Amazon. And we are now on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash explain this book to me. No spaces, no underscores, just explain this book to me. And we'd love it if you can like our page because we want to connect with you outside of the podcast. If you have a question or a thought you'd like to share with me, please email me at josh at agency-intelligence.com. That's josh at agency-intelligence.com. And loyal readers, thank you for downloading the second episode of our third book of the Explain This Book to Me podcast, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.